My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. It's God's word. You may be seated. Thank you, Nikki. Just a quick introduction. My name is Josh. I am the director of students here. So, sixth grade through twelfth grade, I uh, lead the Wednesday night group we have here. Um, I've gotten a few emails just kind of asking, "What do the students here at Redemption do?" Um, obviously, we have lots of campuses. Each student group uh, sets it up their own way. We meet on Wednesday night, and we have teaching, and we have worship. And then the bulk of our time is spent in small groups, which is age-specific and gender-specific. So that's kind of the outline, kind of my view and my vision and my picture of it. There's a, a book in the Bible, Philippians. Paul's talking to a church, and he prays at the beginning, I'd pray that they would grow in their love and their knowledge and their discernment. And that's my, my essential prayer for students, is they would grow in their love uh, for people, obviously, but more importantly for Jesus, because that's what fuels this growing their knowledge that they'd actually know some stuff outside of Call of Duty, and discernment. Um, I teach high school full-time, and it is just a beatdown to try to bring truth into a world that doesn't want it. So we need a generation of young people coming up who are loving, who are knowledgeable, and who are almost most importantly discerning as to what is truth and what is there. So that's our students. If you have any more questions, just email me at joshwad at redemptionaz, and I'd love to talk more. So, um, Our series is, Who is This? Encountering Jesus. We started on Easter um, up to last week when Luke talked about what Jesus had to say about us as humans, and it wasn't good. He called us out from the top of our head down to the bottom of our feet, inside deep down our soul. Jesus says, you're evil. It was kind of a hard message because... It's not intuitive to the way we think. I think I'm pretty good most of the time, and I'm not. And Luke let us know what Jesus had to say. This week, I have who is this Jesus who knew no sin. So as I was preparing, I just kind of had a daydream moment in the middle of my class. I teach math, um, and I was just kind of picturing how each of my students answers this question in their own life. So in my typical classroom, let's say second period, I've got... This atheist kid who sits next to this kid who's trying to figure out Christianity. Behind them are a few Mormon students. Behind them is one girl who doesn't care about any sort of religious ideas. She's a valedictorian bright girl going lots of wonderful places, but the idea of Jesus, she doesn't care. Over here, kind of the same, I've got a kid from Ethiopia who's orthodox, which essentially means he was raised up in a church, but you ask him, what is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus? And He's the guy we'd listen to at church. So um, over here, we got a few more Mormons. So as I'm thinking through this message, obviously in a church setting, it's a little different environment. 
we've got a lot more people who think about this question. But out in the world, whatever your job is, whether you're teaching or an engineer, you can walk through your work and picture each person and how they would answer this. I think that's a good exercise because it gets you thinking about things that matter. Like, who is Jesus? Kind of important deal. Um, I read a quote from a guy who was trying to throw, overthrow communism in Russia. And he said this about his people in Russia. It's not that modern man knows less and less about the meaning of life. It's that it bothers him less and less. And I think about my students. They just don't care. It's just not that big a deal. I picture my son. This is a beautiful picture. He eats his eggs, he eats his meal, and he just shovels it in his mouth. And then if we get him a treat, we gave him half a chocolate donut the other day. He just takes his time. <laughs> I went to work Saturday morning about 8. He had the half a donut in his hand. My wife called me at 9.30. He's done with the donut. <laughs> and we need to savor the question, who is Jesus? Yet we spend our time just thinking about nonsense. It's 102 degrees today. It's hot. Yeah. Really hot. What are you going to do? I don't know. Stay out of the heat? And we just spend time on useless, meaningless, necessary stuff to live, but our bulk of our time is spent just thinking about nonsense, if we're honest with ourselves. So, three things I want to get done today. Who is Jesus? Bible's answer, Jesus is God. Second question, why does it matter? Pretty big question. And third, what are we supposed to do with this? So, Jesus says he's God. Second question, another way to ask is, why would God have to come down here with us, mere mortals, for 33 years of life? And then what are we supposed to do with this? So if you have your Bibles, we're in John 10. Our first point is, Jesus is God, come as a man. I just want to read a couple verses with you. John, Nikki read this, 22 through 24. Let's read this again. At the time of the Feast of Dedication... It took place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. So just reading that out of context, it seems like Jesus is just not a very good communicator. He's been kind of iffy on how he's been describing himself. Just be straight up with us. Who are you? Just tell us, and we'll take it as gospel truth. If you will, flip back to John 8. Page or two over. We're going to be in verse 53 through 59. So we can set this up properly and see the environment Jesus is in. This is 8, 53 through 59. This is the Jews asking Jesus another question. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets who died? Who do you think you are? All these guys die and you're up here talking crazy stuff. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. Oh, 
but I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it, and he was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not even 50, and you say you've seen Abraham. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So the Jews, like third grade boys, picked up stones to stone him. I am, Moses comes to meet God. He says, okay, I'm talking to God. Who am I supposed to tell the people you are? Tell them I am. Jesus comes and talks to the same group of Jews. Fast forward a couple thousand years. Who are you? I am. We're going to kill you because in our word, people who make themselves out to be God and aren't need to be killed. Flip back a couple more. Let's look at one more passage in John. John 5.10. So just so we're clear on Jesus' current audience. 5.10 verse through verse 18. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Jesus had just healed a guy on the Sabbath. You're not supposed to work. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. The guy says it was Jesus. They asked him, Who is this man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Jesus answered him, My Father, your God, is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, which in the Jewish context meant he made himself to be equal with God. So Jesus isn't walking into a group of seekers trying to figure this thing out. Jesus walks into a group, and back in John 10 it says they surrounded him. They surrounded him. They encircled him like vultures. Who do you say you are? Tell us plainly so we can pounce on you. The illustration I gave first, pre- first service was West Side Story. They're ready to roll. They're circling them. Who are you? Because we're going to kill you if you say it one more time. Like little punks, if you say it one more time, say it one more time. And that's what Jesus is waiting for. Just say your God one more time. Just say it. I dare you. They encircled him. What does Jesus say to them? This is verse 25 in John 10. Jesus said, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not part of the flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And here's Jesus' statement. I and the Father are one. Clear as day, God that you think you worship, Jesus standing before you, we are one. The one there doesn't mean the same person, because in the Trinity we have the same substance, different people. We are one. 
We are as one as two heads of the Trinity can be. We are one. Jesus is God. God is Jesus. Jesus is clear as day. Now, as I was thinking through this, and all the kind of arguments I've been in the past with religious folk who disagree with this, the Bible really never does come out and say, Jesus says, I am God, in an American context. Who are you? I am God. He speaks to a Jewish audience, so he says things that Jewish people understand exactly what he's saying. He's not speaking to an American East Valley audience. He's speaking to Jewish people. And here's the arrogant notion that lots of these people take. If you go and study people who would deny Jesus as God, essentially their argument is the same. Jesus may have said that. He didn't mean it. Arrogant. And the people misheard him. Arrogant. So this guy is an idiot. These people are idiots. Come read my blog. I will bestow truth upon you. <laughs> That's essentially the only way around this, is to say they didn't mean what they meant, Jesus didn't mean what they meant, except Jesus never ever corrects anyone when they pick up a stone. He usually just scoots out the back door. But he never says, wait, you thought I, no, I didn't say I was God. He says, darn right, that's what I said. And there's major implications for you people. Verse 31. Let's read how the audience of Jesus' day responds to this. I just love it. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. What an awful response. They pick up stones to stone him. How are people going to respond to this truth nowadays? Some will accept. Some will say, I'll listen a little more. What do you got to say? I'll kind of examine this for myself. And a lot of people, a lot of people, a lot of people are going to hate this. Now, I share this with a lot of folks, and I've never had a rock thrown at me. However, I've been hated in lots of other ways, as a lot of you have been. Here's what G.K. Chesterton says about a modern, enlightened culture when it comes to Christianity. There are those who hate Christianity and they call their hatred an all-embracing love for all religions. So essentially, when we hate Jesus today, we're not going to pick up stones and throw them. In our context, people are just going to say, yeah, you're all saying the same thing. Muhammad is just as cool as Jesus. Jesus is no different than Plato. We love them all. Except in the context of relationship, that doesn't work ever. I love my kid with a special kind of love. More so than I love the other kids. I love my wife with a special kind of love. More so than I love the other women. To say, I love them all the same, just means whatever that object is gets dropped down on your list. And that's wrong. In my classroom, it played out like this a couple months ago. I just had a wild idea to cause some controversy. I have the same group of kids who come in, have lunch with me, do whatever. I've got a group of Muslim students who come in. I've got a couple Mormon students who come in. I've got a few um, football players. Who knows what they are? They don't even know. <laughs> who else? And then I've got one atheist kid who always sits right by my desk. And I um, thought, how do I bring up Jesus to these guys in a different way? 
Uh, so I said, can I just say something real quick before you guys skedaddle out of here? In the person of Jesus, I just want to make sure that we're all clear. Some of us have to be wrong. I know your education and the people around you say there's no absolute truth and it's all just kind of hunky-dory, but we're saying completely opposite things about the same person. Somebody's wrong. And they said, whatever. Okay, let me say it in a more straight way. Jesus is God. And the Muslims erupted, the Mormons erupted, and the atheist guy is just smirking, giggling out to the side. Because this is why I don't want to be in religion, because all they do is fight. <laughs> but the point is, you can say a lot of things, but when you claim someone's God, and you claim that as truth, and you claim that as a truth with huge implications, nobody wants a piece of that. And that's the world we live in. Nobody wants a piece of that. A great illustration of this mindset in the book of Eli, the movie. Anybody seen it? Awesome. The dude's in the room. Beautiful. My wife does not do any sort of gory movie, so as soon as she has any time away, I'm going to get my nails done. I'm at Redbox. I get the most gory rated R movie I can find. <laughs> so she went out with some girlfriends the other day, and I got Book of Eli. It's Denzel Washington, post-apocalyptic world. Um, nuclear war, whatever, you know. Um, and he's got a Bible, and he's got to get to California where all truth is held and honored. And he's got to march across the country with his machete. Just a beautiful movie. You seriously got to see it. Chopping off limbs along the way. This is my Bible. No one touches my Bible. This is truth. So you think. And the end of the movie is just a beautiful picture of where we're at. He gets to, they're actually on Alcatraz, where they're kind of collecting back everything that's been lost in Western civilization. And they take the Bible, and this is kind of how the movie ends. They place it on the shelf, and they zoom out, and next to it is the Quran. On the other side is the Torah. Next to that is Plato's Republic. And all these works that men over the years have compiled, and their essential idea is, it's just one line of truth amongst many. It's not, I'm going to throw stones at Jesus because he says he's God. It's, I'm going to lift everything else up to the same exact level, put it on the same shelf, and they all are valid, all equally true. And that's wrong, logically, theologically, emotionally. That doesn't make sense in any realm of thought. But now, in a world where we can just distract ourselves, we don't actually have to think through that idea. But that's a fact. So my other line of thought with people who deny this is to ask the second question of the message. Okay, let's just for the sake of argument assume Jesus was God. We on the same page, Jesus is God, even if you don't agree. Let's just say. Why, why, why did God have to become a man? Why would God, in all his awesomeness of heaven, come to earth as a man? The way I pictured it is in work. You show up to work one day, and your boss is sitting in your seat, prepared and ready to do your job. You show up, walk in the classroom, and there's your boss. In your cubicle, there's your boss. Whatever it is, the man in charge is sitting in your spot. That's essentially Jesus coming to earth as a man. Right? We agree with that? The boss is in our chair. Why is he sitting there? 
So here's a couple options I jotted down as I thought through this. He could be checking in on you. He's just curious how you're doing. Possibly. Except Solomon in Ecclesiastes says that everything that is done, whether in secret or out in the open, will be revealed. Translation, God is not hidden from anything that's happening, past, present, or future. So him to come to earth to get a better view makes no sense. What about an evaluation? Boss is sitting there, it's evaluation time. Let's talk. Possibly, according to the Bible, God says, you're going to die. You guys all realize that, yeah? We're all going to die. It's appointed for man to die only once, and then he'll face judgment. So God has no, like, mid-year evaluation on you. Let's do a quarter review, see how you're doing, readjust, recalibrate. It's, you're dead, let's talk. What about to have fun doing a lower job? Some of you are bosses and hate your job. You're like, oh, those guys, this is undercover boss. I've got all this money and all this power and everybody wants me, but I'm so bored. I want to go flip fries at in and out John Piper calls God the most fun being in all the universe. The most fun being in all the universe, in the most fun place, heaven in all the universe, and he's going to come down to the Middle East to be a carpenter for fun. Possibly. <laughs> I doubt it. I seriously doubt it. What about to reward good behavior? If you heard last week, Luke talked on what Jesus has to say about man, and it's not pretty. Apostle Paul says there's no one good. Jesus is approached by a lawyer saying, I want to get to heaven. Good teacher. And Jesus stops him and says, no one's good. Let's start this question over. Only God is good. Let's, let's rethink how you're thinking through this. No one is good. So that's out of the question. Dang it. To get a better view of his company. Again, David in Psalm 139 says, where can I go from your presence? There's nowhere I can go where I am hidden from you. So anything you can think through, if you were to assume that Jesus really is God, they all fall apart when you think about an infinite, awesome God and this earth here and why the two would be brought together. So let's, let's open up the Bible a little bit. If you have it, go to Genesis 2. I want to look at three different people groups and see if we can answer this question. Why did God show up? Genesis 2 will be in verse 15. As clearly as I can, let's see if we can answer why God came here. Genesis 2, 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but... Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So let's just simplify this Bible as much as we can. Adam, how many people is Adam? One person. And God says he commanded him not to eat of that tree. So we have one man, one rule. Bible scholars, what was the result? Did he pass the one question, one man test? Answer would be no. Yes. Let's flip over. Let's check out a group of people now. Exodus 24. 
This is page, I think, 65 in the black book. So just, we've got one man, one rule. Why did Jesus have to come? We see one man with one rule fail. Let's check out Moses. And this just cracks me up reading it. Now we got Moses and a group of people. Maybe it's not so much uh, within the context of one man. Maybe we get a group of people. They're spurring each other on towards love and good deeds. And they will love each other. Those of us who have a kid and multiple kids, this is obviously how it works in the Brazelton house. As you add people to your kingdom, it gets better and better. <laughs> Correct? This is why you don't stop this child thing. You love the harmony it brings. <laughs> Exodus 24. This is God's group of people. Let's figure it out. Group 24, verse 3. This is Moses. He came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. <laughs> and Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. So now Moses is writing down the law. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. So now they're going to sign this. They're gonna, this is how they do their signature. Both parties agreeing. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. So Moses reads it again. Let's just make sure. Me and my wife just signed on a house. We went through, signed, and then we went through, read it again, went through, made sure all our signatures were there. Let's just make sure we're clear. Moses says, let's read it again. Response, and they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. How is Israel doing? Adam, failure, let's get a group of people under God's now ten basic rules. We've added nine. How are they going to do? If you read your Bible as a story, Israel gets to be a people group at the start of Judges. They come out of Egypt. They were slaves. They go into Judges where they're in Canaan. They're in the land. God says, you guys are awesome. First chapter of Judges, he says, and there arose a generation who did not know me, did not fear me, and didn't do what I said. Brutal. Failure again. Let's check out one more set of rules here. Go to Deuteronomy, which on the page 161. Deuteronomy 17. Why did God have to come as a man if Adam's figuring it out and Israel figured it out? All these people are doing so well. Deuteronomy 17. Now this is God setting up the rules for the king of Israel. So maybe it's not so much the person or the people together. It's the leadership. It's the government. It's the Republicans. It's the Democrats. It's the state officials. It's the teachers. It's the school district. It's everybody above me. Ah. Let's check out God's way of doing leadership with his people. He's going to have a king. Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. This is the set of rules for his king who will sit on his throne. When you come to the land that your Lord, your God, is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations around me, 
you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. So God's saying, you want a king, we'll give you a king. Here's how it's going to work. One from among your brothers you shall set as a king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. He's got to be one of you guys. Three rules. Rule number one. He, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. You're going to have a king. Don't let him acquire many horses. He can't be war hungry and power hungry and proud and collecting a bunch of stuff from other people. Rule number two, verse 17. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Rule number three. Nor shall he acquire for himself excess silver and gold. Adam, don't touch it. Israel, follow these rules. The king I set over you, don't get for yourself horses. Don't acquire lots of money and don't chase after the women. If you don't know the Bible, there's three main kings, Saul, David, Solomon. David had a few ladies. Solomon had a 900 or so, three years worth of date nights. Holy smokes. Yikes. Their money is talked about extravagantly. They had tons of stuff, and they brought more stuff in. God says, if you're going to have a king, he's got to rely on me for everything. Just like Adam was supposed to rely on me in my word alone, and Israel was supposed to rely on me in my word alone, your ruler's got to rely on me in my word alone. His strength doesn't come from how much he can get from this world. How we doing? The most enlightening thing I've ever been taught about the Bible, I wasn't saved. I was probably 17 years old sitting in a church. Little old guy, Larry Wright, said... This Bible was not written to tell you how good you are. And that's all I ever remember from growing up in the church. And it's true. This Bible's not here to tell us how good we are, how good Adam was, how good Moses and Israel were, how good David is a king or Solomon is a king. What in the world? So what are we supposed to do? We've got God come as a man. We've got God taking the length of the Old Testament, making promises to men. Adam, if you just eat this stuff, you'll live forever. Israel, if you obey, I will bless your socks off. I will bless you. you there will be no people group who can even compare to your wealth and your might and your power and your lifestyle. Kings, you will sit on the throne of David forever. Just don't do these three things. The Bible is so simple to understand once you get that truth in your head. God is making promise after promise after promise after promise to men based off their obedience. And we keep screwing it up. So let's flip over now to Hebrews, page 1003, if you have the Black Bible. Here's God's answer to the question. Why did I show up? Hebrews 4. I'm going to read verse 14 and 15. Verse 14 says, 
Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. We have a God coming through the heavens to earth. He is Jesus, the Son of God. So let us hold fast to this confession. Verse 15, here's where we're going to camp. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. God needed a man to do everything a man's supposed to do and yet never be disobedient. And he's tempted in every way and yet he doesn't fail. I thought of this great illustration. I thought it was genius. And I shared it with my wife. She's like, not very good. But I'll share it with you guys. You guys judge. <laughs> Two guys leaving an AA meeting. Tom goes this way. George goes this way. Tom drives by the bar. Drives like this, obviously, because he's drunk. And immediately when he drives by the first bar, his temptation overcomes him, parks his car, gets in the bar, and has some cold drinks. This guy drives by the same bar and feels the same urge and the same temptation and the same draw and all that goes with an addiction, and he drives on past. And he drives on past the Circle K where he used to pick up all of his drinks. And he goes to work the next day, and he goes out to eat, and the guys order wine, and he smells it, and he wants it, and he needs it, and he craves it, and he says no. Question, who was tempted more, Tom or George? The guy who said no every single step of the way. So we like to think that we're tempted and our temptation is crazy and, oh, the pornography or, oh, my money problem or, oh, and Jesus can't be tempted like me. And yet he said no every step of the way where I crave at the first step of sin. Who was tempted more? And Aubrey said, this is my wife, dear, precious wife. Was he really tempted as every, in every way as we are? And her point was a good point. She just said, I'm a pregnant woman. I've got this crazy little banshee of a two-year-old running around. I've got this belly that is growing. I'm moody. My brain doesn't work like it used to. I keep forgetting stuff. I got you to deal with when you get home from work. Does Jesus know what it's like to be me? Was he tempted like me? That's a great question. Let me just show you what all temptation narrows down to. This is a verse out of 1 John 2.16. Don't turn there. I'll just read it. For all that is in the world. So let's talk about sin. Let's narrow it down. All that's in the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Those are not from the Father, but of the world. So all our temptation comes down to the lust of the flesh. We think we can find goodness outside of God's plan. Whether that's sexual temptation or money temptation or we just think that, I know God said this, but this seems better. And our eyes draw us into everything that this world says will make our life awesome. I teach teenagers every day, and this is their life. How many shiny things can we put in front of them to draw their attention away from God? And lastly, the boastful pride of life. We want credit for being awesome. I'm pretty awesome. You guys should know this. And I want lots of credit. I'll never come out and say it that way, but that's the extent of my life. I want people to think I'm pretty awesome. And Jesus had every single temptation. 
Before he even starts his ministry, he goes out to be tempted by Satan. And he's fasting. And Satan says, here's some bread. Doesn't it look good? Doesn't it look good? Better than relying on God through prayer, you moron. Take this bread. Look at the kingdoms of the world. They will be yours without going through the cross. People will bow down to you. I'll give it to you. So Jesus had every single temptation, even more so, because Satan knew he wasn't going to tempt us with the silly stuff that tempts us. So Satan pulled out every bag of tricks he could find and offered him every possible thing that could tempt a God-man. And Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, by every word that comes out of God's mouth. Adam failed the test. Israel failed the test. Every king has failed the test, and yet every promise of the Bible is given to a man or a group of men saying, I will bless the heck out of you if you just listen. That's the tension of the Bible. God has tons of promises and tons of blessings towards man based on man, and yet we screw it all up. Let's keep reading. This is beautiful. What are we to do with this? Hebrews 4.16, the very next verse. we got three groups of people we're going to talk about with this verse. Let us then, since we look at a man who was fully man, fully God, passed every test and therefore sealed every promise of this great book for us, let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. The Bible says, if God was truly Jesus, and Jesus truly was tempted in every way and yet passed, every promise of this book rests on Jesus and now rests on us who believe and trust in Jesus. Three groups of people. First two are believers in the room. Now, I know there's a set of believers in here who believe this truth, I'm preaching to the choir. This is nothing new. This lights your fire. You go out and you're a plumber and you share this with your other plumber friends. And you're an electrician and you share it with your other electrician friends. You're a teacher and you share it with your other teachers. And you want people desperately to know this truth. And yet people keep up pick, picking up rocks to throw at you. Or saying Jesus is the same as this guy. Nothing's different about him. All I would say is this. This is how Peter addressed a group of Christians in the first century who were struggling with this. Don't go there. I just want you to listen. This is Peter's response to people who are just struggling to keep on keeping on with this message. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So Peter sets up our life in a nutshell. For a little while, it's a short life, there's going to be various trials. I'm talking to you. A little while, I know it seems like forever, and just various trials. I know they seem like they're never ending. But here's what he has to say to you. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. My biological mom died in 2000. She's the first woman to ever share Jesus with me. Giant smile. Walked around smiling and talking about Jesus. What's Kathy doing? She's either smiling or talking about Jesus or doing both at the same time. 
and now she's in heaven for 10,000 years and forevermore with a smiling, proud Jesus. And everything that seems like it's never going to end, I talk to students who just beat down. These kids don't listen to me. They think Jesus is stupid. Like, what can I give them? I can give them Jesus is smiling, and Jesus is proud, and Jesus is going to reward you in heaven for all of eternity. Is that awesome? Jesus is watching you be faithful with this message, and he's got rewards waiting for you, not based off your righteousness, based off his, but he's going to add to your delight in heaven. He promises it. There's another group of people who just kind of struggle to talk about big, weighty truths. Jesus is God. Jesus saves. And it's just a struggle. You're either introverted or you don't know that many non-believers. You're always hanging out with Christian folk. Whatever it is, I would just say probably the biggest hurdle is just to know that your only job in all of this is to confess the truth. Jesus will do the convincing. Confess, Jesus will convince. That takes all the pressure off. You mean all I have to do is say Jesus is God? Yes, maybe more creatively than that, and maybe be nice behind it, but yeah, Jesus will take care of the rest. A pastor that I follow in Texas, he takes his 10 guys out at a time to teach them how to preach, and he puts them in a seminary, and he says, pick the 10 best headstones you can find and preach the very best sermon you can think of. We're going to be in Judges 7, and they preach their message, and they report back to him. He says, how did it go? What? They're all dead. Okay. Go put on your best suit. Go think of some jokes that might grab their attention. Maybe do a song and dance. Think of something to really draw them in. And go do it. We're going to be in Judges, but before we go there, knock, knock. (laughs) How did it go? They're dead. And his point is, People are dead. That's why they don't believe. And we don't bring dead people to life. We talk about a dead man who came back to life. And when the Spirit wants to, and when the Spirit is willing, he will raise up people just like he did in my heart and in some of your hearts. The pressure is off us. You're not going to get to heaven. Jesus is disappointed because you didn't have more conversions. That's God's job. And the last group, just those of you who just haven't figured this out, you're still figuring, who is this Jesus guy? Who is this guy? The Hebrews passage said, let us draw near with confidence. And my warning, gentle rebuke I would leave you with is, the confidence given to those who trust Jesus as the one who passed all temptations. So those of you who are holding on to your life in whatever capacity that is, whether it's religious or you're just going to... Power through this life, you have no confidence in anything. I've got a friend in Texas who emails me stuff all the time. Hey, man, uh, read this. They've just realized Jesus didn't really exist. Read it. Okay, cool. Two days later, hey, read this. Uh, Jesus did exist, but he didn't really come back from the dead. Okay, whatever. And I read all the stuff, and I respond. And I always, about every third message, I respond with a question to him. Your sweet little Ainsley girl. She's starting to think about the world. When she asks you, what happens when I die? What are you going to tell that little girl? I said, you've got two options. You can lie to her and make up a fantasy. 
which goes against everything you believe in, because that's what you think I'm doing. Or you can be honest with her and say, nothing will be dirt, fertilizer for future plants. There is no confidence for the man or woman who base their hope in this world and in the next life on themselves. Adam screwed up. Moses screwed up. David screwed up. All the apostles screwed up. I screw up. You all screw up. And yet our hope is in a God who came to earth as a man and took on every temptation and passed and sealed the deal for all the promises of all eternity. That is beautiful. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you give your word to sinful fallen people and you delight in watching us open up your word and see it come to life. This truth of your incarnation, you coming to earth as a man, has the most weight and implication on it than any other question we could ever ask. It's a beautiful truth as to why you came. Against the backdrop of our ugly, disobedient hearts, you stepped in and you were Adam who listened and said no to that tree, said yes to a cross. You were Israel who said everything you say we will do and failed. He succeeded in every test. And you're the great king who said I won't take a horse, I'll ride in on a donkey where you guys will beat me and kill me. I won't acquire wealth. I left the wealth to come here. God, you were perfect. You were sinless. We are everything but that, and yet you offer it to us. Thank you for offering it to me. I pray that it would stir the hearts of the people who don't know this yet. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, man. Well, we are going to uh, draw near now with confidence not in our own standing or righteousness, but in the righteous life of Christ. As that verse says, because we have a great high priest, one who's gone before us and made a way to the Father, we can draw near with confidence. We're going to do that through communion. We're going to do that um, as we sing and pray together. Communion, the elements are in the center of the room on this table by the pole, as well as under the, the two screens on either side of the front here, and and that is available for anyone who has put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, who has um, no confidence in the flesh, no confidence in your works or um, the good things you've done, the the hard hard works you've 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 achieved, um, but you've you've laid that all down and you boast only in Him. So that's for you. We, we want to invite you to come. And as you take the, the bread or the cracker in this case, you remember the perfect life of Christ, the perfectly fulfilled uh, law that, that, he, that he lived. And as we eat that, as we feast on that, we take that as a symbol, remembering that he offered that life uh, before the Father on our behalf. And then the cup represents um, the blood that he shed, the judgment our judgment that he took it's now this new covenant the deal is no longer do this great stuff and you'll be blessed the deal now is trust in Jesus's great obedience and you'll be blessed so it's the scripture calls it the cup of a new covenant a new promise 
as we drink that, we renew that commitment and, that, and remember that promise that God made to us. So if you're in that boat, please please take uh, communion on your own this morning. Um, if you're not there yet, uh, we're so glad you're here. Just encourage you to, to stay where you're at, stay seated, and, and maybe just pray, reflect on these things that you've heard today.